All right, so uh, like Mark said, I'm a first-year DPhil student here, so this is sort of um, prior work that I've done. Uh, it's based on a paper I'm working on called Methods of Legitimation, How Ethics Committees Decide Which Reasons Count. Um, and it comes out of my senior thesis from Princeton, where I was a public policy major and minored in gender and sexuality studies. Um, and the title of that thesis was Governing Assisted Reproductive Technologies in the U.S. and the U.K., um, Whether, When, and How the Public Matters. Um, and I think I started off this project uh, much more interested in the politics of reproduction coming from the gender and sexuality study side of it. And I think I came out the other end much more interested in the evaluation of moral reasoning in public decision making. Um, and so this particular paper is based on the chapter on deliberation for my thesis. So looking at how ethics committee members talk about these reasons within their deliberative sphere. Um, and in terms of my future work at Ethox and the Hero Center, um, reformulating this paper has been uh, a great stepping stone for me. I started back in October. Um, and in the future, I'm hoping to work on um, the proper role of bioethical expertise in democratic society, probably not extremely theoretical, more within a practical context. Um, but yeah, that sort of gives you an overview of who I am, where I'm coming from. Um, and now I'm going to go ahead and start off um, sort of by setting the scene with respect to the role of expertise in public decision making um, and sort of the relation between expertise um, and the evaluation of reasons. Um, so until fairly recently, the governance of science and technology policy was largely controlled uh, by an elite class of scientific experts. Uh, but in the past couple of decades, the technocratic model has come under attack. Uh, the question became why, simply because of their technical expertise, should scientific experts have exclusive power to say what the role of science and technology ought to be in democratic societies? Uh, and the response in many settings to this question was, in many but not all settings, was to sort of institute ethics committees or place bioethicists alongside the technical experts on committees. Uh, and the goal here seemed to be to move beyond the sort of narrow biomedical account of well-being frequently utilized by scientific advisory committees, with the idea being that ethics committees or bioethicists would be able to bring larger social and ethical concerns to bear upon this policymaking process. Uh, the problem that resulted, of course, uh, is this problem of ethical expertise. And this has been defined in many different ways, and I don't really want to get into all of those different definitions, except to say that the problem that all of them seem to have with ethical expertise, uh, all these different definitions, is this categorization of reasons or arguments within uh, the committee's deliberative space as either appropriate or inappropriate reasons. Um, Alfred Moore, who's a political scientist that I uh, cite quite frequently in this paper, uh, calls this the practice of making some kinds of concerns appear legitimately ethical, while making others appear to be merely political or transient matters of public concern. And this response to this problem of ethical expertise uh, was the rise, particularly in the UK, of the patient and public involvement movement, PPI, um, and this increasing conception of the lay expert, that there's a, some type of lay expertise. Uh, and so the challenges I see it with all of these layering of experts um, is that you have this growing number of experts. You can imagine sitting around a table, uh, the scientist, the bioethicist, the patient, the layperson, um, and they're all claiming a particular type of expertise. And this creates a real tension of what it means to make a legitimate public decision. And I think that this raises two sets of questions. Um, the first one is a set of empirical questions. So empirically, how is this tension worked out in practice? And the second set of questions are, are normative. So which, what, what reasons ought to be voiced and carry force in the public sphere in democratic societies? 
Um, and, and that is sort of situated within a much broader discourse in the literature um, about public reasons. So you can think of Rawls' idea of public reasons, you can think of Audi's idea of secular reasons, and then Gutman and Thompson's idea of reasons that can be accepted by others. Um, and, and this paper does focus on that first set of, of questions. Um, it it's definitely has an empirical focus to it. Uh, and I will return briefly at the end to the normative questions, and that's sort of what I wanted, where I want to go in my future work on my DPhil. But um, for this paper and this presentation, um, I'm looking at how that tension is worked out in practice, how the process of categorizing reasons as legitimate or as illegitimate um, works. And to do this, I look at two different methods of uh, categorizing those reasons as legitimate or illegitimate. The first is the UK's Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority's method of balancing reasons. And the second is the uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine's uh, method of filtering reasons. And I'll explain what all of that means shortly. But I think it's first useful to give you a bit of a uh, background of the institutional missions and structures of these two organizations. Um, so both play the most significant role in determining the rules for ART at the national level in their respective countries, but they represent, I would argue, radically different conceptions of the governance of ART. Um, and the, the only other key similarity I think they have is that rules in each institution come out of and are endorsed by a small deliberative committee. So starting with the HFEA, um, the HFEA was created by um, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act of 1990, uh, and it's a statutory authority that has the power to produce binding regulations based on its deliberations. Uh, it also embodies many of the ideals of deliberative democracy. For instance, um, with its membership, uh, the chairman, deputy chairman, and one-third to one-half of its members must be lay and unbiased, which is operationalized as not being a medical practitioner, not being concerned with keeping or using gametes or embryos outside the body, and not having any financial or research conflicts of interest. Uh, they also hold public consultations, which suggests that they care about public input, what the public thinks. Um, and they have two open meetings per year, uh, which is broadly based on this idea that reasoning must be accessible to the people upon which those guidelines or regulations are going to be enforced upon. Um, the ASRM, on the other hand, uh, very different. It was founded in 1944 by a small group of fertility experts, um, and it's a self-regulating professional association. So it, it only does and only can produce guidelines. It doesn't have any mechanism for enforcement. Um, but it, it represents only real rules for ART in the U.S. because there's no federal regulation um, for ART besides a minor reporting requirement by the CDC that isn't really even able to be enforced either. Um, and as a professional association, it, it serves dues-paying fertility clinicians and professionals. Um, and in terms of its relation to the public, its mission statement only describes it as educating the lay public. Um, there's no suggestion that the public is or ought to be involved um, in terms of participating actively and engaging. Um, the other sort of strange feature of the ASRM, I'd say, uh, is that there's two separate committees rather than the one deliberative committee within the HFEA, which is called the, the authority generally, it's referred to. Um, in the ASRM, there's a practice committee and an ethics committee, and almost all of the members uh, describe these as uh, parallel but really completely separate. No one sits on both of them. Uh, there's not a lot of communication going on between the two of them. And the practice committee is made up entirely of clinicians and scientific researchers, while the ethics committee is made up of clinicians, attorneys, and academic bioethicists. 
Uh, and this creates this weird situation in which it's very unclear who is supposed to be dealing with which issues, who should be producing guidelines on which issues. Um, and everyone was in agreement that the presence of imp- the people that I interviewed, everyone was in agreement uh, that the presence of empirical data means that it's a practice committee question. So if there's empirical data on the issue at hand, the practice committee handles it. If there's not, the ethics committee handles it. Um, and this, does, this seems sort of a non-obvious way to, to determine whether an ethics committee should look at a question, I would say. Um, it, it's not asking, does this issue raise ethical concerns? It's a, it's a different question. Um, and still, the practice committee, even though it, it claimed to be only dealing with empirical data and issues, uh, does end up making recommendations based on risk or claims about the goals of IVF that are clearly ethical in nature. Um, and in terms of looking at how I'm going to look at these two organizations and their, their methods of reasoning, um, my methodology, this is a very light slide, but um, in, in getting at this question, I, I interviewed a bunch of people from, from each organization. Um, and the interviews lasted about 40 to 50 minutes. Um, I interviewed five members of the HFEA and two members of its executive staff, that's from the chief office of the executive. Um, and they, they play a, a supporting role to the, the authority. They sort of carry out the public consultations, which was why it was very important, I thought, to, to get their views on some of these issues. Um, and then I interviewed three members of the ASRM's Ethics Committee, two of the Practice Committee, and one of the Public Relations staff. Um, and to give you an idea of sort of my sample size, um, there's about 15 to 20 members of any given time on the HFEA and approximately 15 on both the Ethics and the Practice Committee of the ASRM. So I'm going to start off by talking about um, the HFEA and looking at this method of balancing reasons within the HFEA. Um, and when, when asked to describe practically what they do in deliberations, um, everyone, and quite frequently, invoked the term balancing. Um, so the first question might be, you know, what, what is balancing? What does this mean? Um, so here we have, the, the role of the authority is to take everybody's opinion and positions and thoughts into account and to balance them. And I think that's really crucial with everything that is done, to make everybody aware that we are looking at everybody's perspective and that we're there not on behalf of any particular group or in order to be swayed by any group. And I think what this quote really illustrates is that while the metaphor of balancing might be fairly clear, its practical manifestations or it's the sort of mechanics of this balancing act are, are quite complex. Um, this account doesn't really tell us anything about what the HFEA is actually doing when it balances reasons. Um, based on the practice of public consultations, we would already expect them um, to take all perspectives into account um, and to be as impartial as possible. So a lot of my interviews with members of the HFEA uh, were spent pushing them to explain balancing a bit more than this sort of superficial account. Um, and so when I pushed them a bit further, this was, this was sort of the response I got. Um, so simply because a particular group has formed, which has a clear interest in the matter and campaigns on it and agitates and has material, I don't think gives them any particular right or weight in terms of their views as opposed to members of the general public. I think in some areas, however, it would seem to me that where we do get clear statements from genetic interest groups saying, you know, we're the affected parties, we suffer from this particular condition, this is hard for us, that does weigh with us to a degree, because their direct familiarity with the condition has an importance it might not in some other matter. And this, this quote sort of introduces this concept of weight, uh, such that balancing comes to be seen as a process of scaling the relative importance of different perspectives. 
And the, key, the other key point, particular point here, is that having a greater interest doesn't entail a greater influence on the decision at stake, um, unless, crucially, that interest group is also an affected group, um, the affected parties, those that suffer, um, those for which this is hard, as this, as this uh, member says. Um, and here we have this really fascinating distinction being made between being interested on the one hand and being affected on the other. Um, so in the mind of the HFEA, an affected group are, are those who can be helped or harmed by the novel technology or procedure at stake. Uh, so while a particular religious interest group um, might have an interest or be interested in the outcome of a decision concerning IVF, uh, they're not considered affected in the same way that an interest group representing infertile couples would be. I think it's important to note that this is a very particular account of affectedness. Um, religious or conservative groups would claim that they are affected. The problem is just that the HFEA has the wrong account of affectedness, of affectedness that it's operating under. Um, and this account of affectedness, the HFEA's account, is important because by giving special weight to the affected, the suffering, or those who may be helped or harmed, the HFEA is privileging a specific type of concern, um, particularly what I'll call uh, health and welfare concerns. And I want to argue that this is surprising. Um, the very reason that we moved away from technical expertise and the reason that was challenged in the first place was due to its endorsement of a very narrow biomedical account of well-being. And while this might not be the same biomedical account, um, that narrow dedication to one set of concerns still seems to be being reproduced within a method that was actually designed to represent alternative ethical and social concerns. So I think the next big question after that becomes, you know, where does this leave those alternative concerns that were meant to be included um, with this formulation of the HFEA? And I'm going to use the case of arguments based on um, unnaturalness concerns or arguments based on unnaturalness of certain technologies and procedures as an example of how such alternative values fare within the HFEA's deliberative space. Um, so the first thing to note um, is that, as this, this member says, uh, we call it the yuck factor when we're discussing it, when they're discussing arguments based on unnaturalness. Uh, and this is a fairly common phrase that is used, but... I think it's important to note that it carries a negative connotation, and even more important to note that it implies that the HFEA understands most, if not all, concerns for the preservation of the natural as sort of gut reactions or instinctive reactions, meaning that they're not really reasons in and of themselves. Um, and I think this denial of their legitimacy as reasons is captured in the second quote here. Um, this member says, I'm not sure that we can say the fact that something unnatural is a reason in and of itself without anything more not to do something. There would need to be another reason about to do with maybe harming somebody or harming some constituency. Um, so and I think what this illustrates very well is that in order to be considered a legitimate reason, uh, the reason must incorporate the identification of some harm. And in pra I want to show sort of how in practice this works out, how this, this need to incorporate harm works out. Um, so I'm going to use an example uh, based on the Save Your Sibling controversy from a couple years back, quite some time back now, I guess. Um, so I should probably give you a bit of background on that. Um, the HFEA member here is talking about the public consultation and public response to Save Your Siblings. And Save Your Siblings refers to um, the practice of pre-implantation tissue typing, which allows parents the opportunity to select an embryo to implant that will be a tissue match for an older brother or sister with a blood disease or blood disorder. Um, so th 
the account is, it's, it's using embryos for outcomes that you wouldn't achieve through nature. And naturally, I think those were the things that were hugely controversial. Well, arguments based on a naturalist certainly weren't excluded, because I think we were very mindful of the fact that it was a quite realistic possibility, in clinical terms, that you could potentially take it to the point where you were creating babies simply for use of their organs. And I think what you see here is that by deciding that respondents who cited unnaturalness in this particular issue were actually concerned about the health and welfare of babies who would be born simply for use of their organs, the HFA, in fact, stripped these public perspectives of, of any sort of alternative social values that they may have been based upon, such as how family members ought to relate to one another. Um, so that's, that's really what I wanted to say about the HFEA, um, sort of that this method of balancing uh, renders arguments about, based on health and welfare concerns legitimate, while denying that legitimacy to arguments based on alternative values, such as the preservation of the natural. You could also look at... Um, values based on human dignity, arguments like that. Um, and, and in this respect, I would argue that it's, it's less a process of balancing and more a process of, of tipping the scales. Um, and now I'm going to go on to look at um, the ASRM and this method of filtering reasons in the ASRM. So again, I'm, I'm pulling the term filtering straight from um, an account I got from a member at the SRM. Um, so this ethics committee member uh, said, there may not be a policy fix for everything, particularly in reproduction, where we think it's very important to let people make their own decisions. So we constantly evaluate our policy proposals through the filter of, does this make it any harder for our members' patients to get treatment than it already is? And if it is, you'll have to tell us what huge social problem is being solved by this. In most cases, there is not one. Um, so I think it's very clear from this that they're prioritizing letting people make their own decisions. And it, it, this account also suggests that they've constructed this sort of institutional filter that ensures a constant awareness of guideline alternatives effects on patients' reproductive autonomy. And this is somewhat complicated occasionally, it seems, by these huge social problems, which he doesn't really think uh, apply all that often. Um, so I'm going to start by emphasizing this commitment to reproductive autonomy, and then I'm going to turn to those cases in which there is a perceived huge social problem. Um, so this ethics committee member went on to say, we hold very strongly that reproductive decisions ought to be made by individuals, and if they need medical treatment, then those decisions should be made in consultation with their physician. We don't think it's their neighbor's business. We don't think it's their sister's business. We don't think it's the government's business. We don't think it's bureaucrats' business. We don't think it's Nightline's business. We think it's the business of the people contemplating having the children. Um, I think this is great for illustrating the very firm and strong commitment that the ASRM has to uh, preserving reproductive autonomy. And uh, this sort of suggests that the reason that they have this filtering mechanism, the reason why they filter out arguments that um, make it harder for their patients to get the treatment they want, is due to this commitment to preserving reproductive autonomy. Um, however, uh, interviewees did suggest, crucially, that some decisions require imposing limits. Um, and these limits were presented by interviewees as necessary in order to maintain a posit positive public image by creating guidelines that fall within the bounds of public acceptability. And to ascertain the public acceptability of guideline alternatives, the ASRM, because it has no public consultation method, um, sort of appears to consider the public in the abstract to determine whether its guidelines are marketable uh, to this sort of abstract public. 
So the question becomes, you know, if we determine using this filter uh, what guidelines will preserve reproductive autonomy, is it something we can then sell to the public? And what I really want to emphasize is that I, I don't think I'm imposing this marketing discourse or strategy upon the SRM. I think its members really do think about and talk about it in this way. So I wanted to, to bring out these two quotes um, which talk about this marketing strategy sort of in the abstract. Um, so looking at the first one, this practice committee member says, I think considering public opinion is pretty high on our list of priorities because to represent our members fairly, we need to have buy-in from the larger community. And the public relations staff member says, the SRM employs me to say, here's what the media is paying attention to. And maybe that means we need to do something about it. Or maybe it means we don't. And also to say, yeah, that might be what the data says, but that's going to be an ugly sell for us. So I think that this, this shows this, this buying, selling, utilizing this marketing discourse in, in the abstract. Um, I thought it would be useful to give a sort of practical example of this, how this works out. Um, and the example I'm going to use deals with sperm donation, and I'll sort of have to, to set the, the scene for this one as well. Um, in, in late 2011, uh, there was sort of public outcry and media attention um, over this man who donated sperm, and it ended up being revealed that he now has 150 genetic children. Um, and the major public concern seemed to be, you know, what if these children meet, um, they're related, they don't know they're related, uh, they marry, and then they have kids. Like, isn't this awful? Uh, and, and this member of the practice committee said, I mean, medically and scientifically, the fact that this guy has 150 kids feels icky and creepy, but it's not a big deal. Because, you know, it raises one of the huge taboos in our culture about incest, but it's not really incest because they don't know that they're related. And the medical consequences of them even reproducing later are far less than most people realize. Most people think that if you have a baby with your cousin, it's going to have three heads, and around the world there's lots of consanguinity that's meaningless. But it's almost impossible to articulate in a soundbite what I just tried to tell you, that this isn't really important and you should just move on. You can't say that because then you sound too laissez-faire. And I think what this member is suggesting in a very interesting way, is that while the ASRM has come to the conclusion that single-generation incidental consanguinity does not raise any serious ethical problems, the inability to capture that reasoning in a soundbite is a legitimate reason to maintain what was at this point and still is um, its current guideline of a 10-family limit, ten limit on the number of families a sperm donor can help create. Um, so I, basically, to, to sort of recap that in easier terms to understand, um, there's no sort of ethical concern here. The committee has no concerns about um, ethically is this problematic. But because there might be this public outcry, because it would not be publicly acceptable if the ASRM dropped its guidelines for a 10-family limit, um, they've decided that that is reason enough to keep that guideline in place. So this marketability caveat occasionally results in the adoption of restrictive guidelines, such as limiting the use of sperm donations. Um, and, and such cases, I think, are example of things that the ASRM has decided that it, it can't sell. Um, and down that line, I want to go on to another example of something it decided it couldn't sell. Um, and that's Octomom. And if you're from the US, I'm sure you will have heard of Octomom. You may have also heard of it if you're from the UK. Um, but I'll give you a brief overview of, of that situation. Um, Octomom was sort of the name in the media given to Nadia Suleiman, who gave birth to octuplets after a California fertility doctor transferred 12 embryos in one cycle of IVF, um, which is a lot. Uh, 
And there was a sort of a massive and largely negative response uh, from the public. <coughs> and uh, I, I sort of asked some of the members of the SRM about this and how this worked out for them. And one practice committee member said, you know, we don't want to be embarrassed like this again. It's common to hear the phrase in meetings, we don't want another Octomom. And I think this is suggesting that the very term Octomom has become a sort of benchmark for gauging public acceptability in the filtering process. Um, by invoking the phrase, we don't want another Octomom, in a discussion, that, that sort of filters out those options that might result in a similar public relations disaster. Uh, and before moving on to this second quote, um, prior to this, prior to this section, um, we've been looking at how marketability, the marketability caveat functions in practice. We've been looking at, you know, how it works. Uh, the question still remains sort of why is it working in this way? Why does the SRM feel the need to sell its guidelines um, and, and create guidelines that are publicly acceptable? Um, and I think this goes a long way towards answering that. Um, I think we have to be very careful because if there's a big outlier like this Octomom, someone in the government might decide that they're going to regulate what we do. And I think on the one hand, it would be good for the outliers that are not compliant. But I think on the other hand, for the vast number of clinics that are complying, do you want a politician saying you can't put two embryos back? So, and I think, I think the, the key phrases in here are someone in the government might decide that they're going to regulate what we do, and do you want a politician saying you can't put two embryos back? Um, I think what this is suggesting um, more generally is that Octomom is a, a very serious threat, is perceived as a very th serious threat to the preservation of reproductive autonomy for the majority of patients. Um, it also leaves open this question of, are they really concerned about preserving reproductive autonomy, or are they actually concerned about preserving their own professional autonomy? Um, are they concerned about not having government interference in the way they practice in the clinic? Um, and I think that the members of the ASRM and many of, many of the practice, all of the practice committee members basically are clinicians, would say that the best way to preserve reproductive autonomy is by preserving our professional autonomy. They think that um, profession, or professional self-regulation is more conducive to reproductive autonomy than government regulation would be. But this does create this question of clinicians, clinician interests versus patient interests, particularly if and when those don't align. Um, so I want to go ahead and just outline the logic of this marketability caveat one more time because uh, it can become a little bit clear and un unclear and complicated. Um, but basically, outliers like Octomom, like the sperm donor with 150 children, um, will lead to this public outcry, which will lead to government regulation, um, which will lead to sort of both reduced reproductive autonomy and reduced professional autonomy. So that's sort of how they worked it out in their minds. Um, but clearly condemning Octomom and attempting to prevent future higher-order multiple births sends the message that such reproductive choices are not acceptable ones. Um, and in this sense, the response to Octomom can be interpreted as a, a sort of sacrifice of certain extreme choices to safeguard the principle of reproductive autonomy more generally. And this is why I think it functions as, as a caveat to the, the general filter um, rather than as a constraint. It's because um, it's a method of instituting limits to support, however ironically, uh, the principle of reproductive autonomy. Um, so just two main concluding remarks. Um, 
or conclusions from this data, I guess. Uh, the first is that these two organizations seem to differ remarkably in how they reason in making decisions, specifically in how they determine which reasons are legitimate reasons upon which to make decisions. Um, and second, and relatedly, the methods for reasoning and decision-making seem to be quite out of sync with what each organization is set up to do or publicly says that they do do. Um, so for the HFEA, they design, it was designed to promote sort of real substantive involvement from the public and to consider sort of alternative ethical and social concerns, um, when actually what it seems to be doing is not balancing those reasons alongside other ones, but rather to be sort of tipping the scales um, prior to any actual deliberation towards health and welfare concerns. Um, on the other hand, the ASRM, it's a little bit more tricky to, to, to analyze what's going on there because part of the problem is that they are not entirely clear about what they are set up to do, um, which results in confusion over its commitment to its patients first or to its clinicians first. Um, but certainly that within the ASRM, there's this strange discord between the ASRM on the one hand claiming that it's no one else's business, the public shouldn't have any say in what in these reproductive decisions, only the people making those decisions ought to be involved in that. And on the other hand, seeming to react quite strongly to um, public response or the expected public opinion of a certain guideline or guideline option. Um, and this, this discord, I think, has resulted in a kind of passive role for the public. They're considered in the abstract, um, but they're not actually involved, they're not engaged in the process. Um, they sort of are recipients of uh, these guidelines. Um, and finally, I wanted to go back to that sort of normative question or the set of normative questions that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and I think that the sort of larger general question is sort of which reasons ought to be voiced and carry force in the public sphere in democratic societies, and sort of more specifically to this paper, um, the big questions are, are, are either of these two methods justifiable or are they sort of completely corrupt? Um, I think what's so interesting about this, and I'm sure there are opposing views in this room, is that you might view this um, account of what's happening in the HFVA, for instance, as a profound failure. You know, they were set up to do, to incorporate public uh, values, public reasons, um, when in fact they're really tipping the scales towards health and welfare concerns without sort of making that a point of deliberation. Or you might think, on the other hand, that this is actually sort of a triumph of moral reasoning, that you know, even though we set this up to allow the public to voice their values, opinions, beliefs, the right reasons are still carrying more weight. They're still winning out in the end. Thank you.